we're going to spend the next eight or 10 weeks uh, going through the book of Hebrews uh, from the New Testament. This is uh, a 2,000-year-old sermon. The author calls it a word of exhortation, which we don't use the word exhortation much anymore, but that's, that's a sermon, a word of exhortation. So we're going to spend eight to 10 weeks studying a 2,000-year-old sermon. You guys excited? Some of you are like, no. <laughs> can I be honest? Yeah, you can be, you can be honest. Here's, here's why I, I'm excited, and I hope I can inspire you to be excited as well. One of the phrases that the author of uh, this letter uses is he says that the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is living and active. If, if that's true, and, and Hebrews is part of the Word of God, then this is not just a 2,000-year-old sermon. This is a, a word from God that is for us today, just as it was for the people who read it, heard it 2,000 years ago, and it is active. It is at work in us, in our church, around the world, doing things for the kingdom of God. Do you believe that the word of God is living and active? Now, are you excited to study a 2,000-year-old sermon? Yeah, well, I mean, a little more, a little more. Like, I sweetened the deal a little bit. Okay, good. Um, this is a unique letter because we don't know who wrote it. Uh, most of the um, documents that make up uh, what we call the Bible now, I mean, the scholars have had a lot of time to figure this out. We know where this stuff came from and how it was put together, but this one, we don't know exactly who wrote it, and we don't know a whole lot about the audience that it was written to. It just says, to the Hebrews, right? And, and the Hebrews were they're Jews, descendants of Abraham, who had come to believe in Jesus. These are Christian Jews, most likely living in Italy. There's a clue there in, in the letter that maybe these are, are Christian Jews living in Italy. And, and so that's about it. That's, that's all we know. But um, if the word of God is living and active, then what was for them can also be for us. And, and so we're going to spend some time digging into this. And there is a clue about what was going on at the con with the context of the audience in chapter 10. So we're going to look at that to start with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. He says, uh, he or she, we don't know. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. So here, here are the clues about what's going on. There, there's a high cost being paid for following Jesus in this culture. And it is taking its toll. The, the preacher says, when you guys first came to Christ, you, you paid this price joyfully. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Does that sound crazy to you? If someone came to your house and said, everything you own is no longer yours, it's now mine, and you went, yay. Like, that's just weird. But Paul, the, the, it's not Paul, the, the, uh, the preacher here says, you joyfully accepted that. That's, that's how you responded to the high cost of following Jesus in the beginning. But now... I mean, some of you are, are drifting, you're, you're, you're wandering, you're, you're letting go of your faith. So that's, that's the situation for them. Let's dig a little deeper into what, what was the cost for these Jewish Christians living in Italy at the time. So what we understand from history and from scripture, we can 
kind of build a picture of what life was like for these Christians. So there was a social cost that they paid. Um, if you think about what it would have been like for the Jews under uh, Nazi uh, regime in, in World War II times, in the late 30s, uh, the 40s, um, what was it like for the Jews living in Germany or other parts of, of Europe, France? Well, first of all, I mean, if, if, if the wrong people found out you were a Jew, that was it. They would cart you off and, and take all your stuff and close down your business. And um, most likely you lost your life. But not only was it bad for the Jews, it was bad for anyone who was associated with the Jews. So if you did business with Jews, you could be in trouble. If you invited Jews over to your house, you could be in trouble. If you lived next door to Jews, you could be in trouble. So it became a very isolating situation. Everyone just stepped back from the Jews because it was dangerous to be associated with them. That's sort of what it was like for these Christian Jews living in Italy in the first century. The, the Roman um, culture had sort of painted them as, as the bad guys of the culture, the people who, who weren't doing what they were supposed to do. The whole system uh, of Pax Romana, this piece of Rome that uh, came up from Julius Caesar and Augustus, was built on this, this community that sort of agreed on a couple things together. One of the things they agreed on is we're, we're gonna worship at these temples. We're gonna give, we're gonna pay our dues at the local temples. And the temples were all dedicated to some Roman god or goddess. And part of being a good citizen is you, you go to the temple, you offer sacrifice, and essentially you're paying your dues. You're, you're feeding the local economy and you're, you're declaring yourself a good citizen. The Christians didn't do that. They didn't, they didn't go and offer sacrifices at the pagan temples. They served one Lord, one God. And so they became sort of, uh, most people would just say, well, you're just, you just don't care about us. You're not a good citizen. You're not contributing. Others would interpret it as breaking the law. And if they're breaking the law, then they, their property could be confiscated to uh, supplement the taxes they're not paying by going to the, to the temples. So there's the social price and people begin to draw back from them and say, not only, not only do I not wanna be a Christian, I don't even wanna be associated with Christians. I don't want my kids going to school with Christians. I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna be around Christians. I don't wanna do business with them. I don't wanna live next door to them. And so it became very isolating um, and, and difficult for them. Uh, and so they, they paid a high price. Uh, some were, were put in prison. And, and as the author says here, they, they endured it joyfully at the beginning, but it, started to take its toll on them just year after year and the next generation coming up with the same fate and people began to fall away. What does it cost us in our culture today to follow Jesus? Now, I, I could have phrased that differently. I could have said, what does it cost us in our culture today to be a Christian? But I didn't use that word specifically because the word Christian means different things to different people, doesn't it? I mean, you can, you can call yourself a Christian and really all you mean by that is I believe that there's a God. I think there's probably a heaven. And if there's a heaven, there might be a hell and I don't wanna go there. So I believe in God. I hope I go to heaven when I die. I'll just try to be good. Hope for the best. A lot of people, when they say they're a Christian, that's pretty much what they mean. And maybe they go to church a couple times a year or maybe they pray when things get really bad. But other than that, it's just this mental decision that was made at some point I'd rather go to heaven than hell, so I believe in God, so 
I'm good. That's what some people mean by Christian. Other people use the word Christian in really in almost a political sense these days. And, and you can say, I'm a Christian. And to some people, that means, well, we're putting you in this category of, of political beliefs, and you're, you're over here on this side and probably pretty far over there. That's not what it means to be a Christian. What we know that it means to be a Christian is to say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He's my only hope, and he's the Lord of my life. Oh, my thoughts, words, and actions, he, he's in charge of everything. What would it cost you in our culture to live like that? Where you, you wake up every day and say, Jesus is my Lord. Whatever he wants, I'll do. He's the boss. He's in charge. And he loves me. What would it cost you to live that way? It might cost you socially. You might stand out in some social settings. You, you might be a part of a society where things like uh, excessive eating, excessive drinking, sexual promiscuity are the norm. And in those environments, you're going to stand out because you're not going to participate in those things. And when you don't participate, when you're, when you're in an environment where, where everyone's pretty drinking excessively and you're not, everyone assumes that you're judging them for their actions. And people start to step back from you and say, well, if you're going to judge me, I don't want to be around you. Nobody, I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. And you, get, you stop getting invited to things, right? Some of you are like, good, don't invite me. I don't want to be at that party anyway. But what, what it costs us is, is community. It costs us some of our influence, our opportunity to be salt and light. It, it can cost you politically. I, I believe that as citizens of this country, we, we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to be involved, to, to vote, to be informed and, and exercise our right to vote and to support the values that, that Jesus brings when, when the kingdom of God comes to earth, right? But as we said before, sometimes the word Christian gets associated with a certain set of political beliefs that don't all align with the way of Jesus. And so it, it could cost you politically. People hear that you're a Christian, they put you in this category and they assume some things about you that are just not true. There's not a whole lot we can do about that. It can cost you it, it will absolutely cost you financially. If you, if you wake up every day and say, Jesus, you're Lord over my thoughts, words, and actions, and my bank account, it absolutely will cost you financially to be a follower of Jesus. It costs you culturally to be a follower of Jesus. You get labeled and categorized in ways that may not be true or fair. There's a high price for following Jesus, even in our world today. You're not going to prison. You're not having your property confiscated, but we pay a price for being true to our Lord and Savior. So at this point, we should all be leaning in saying, okay, if this 2,000-year-old preacher has something to say to me about how to, how to live, how to hold on to Jesus with this high cost of following in our culture, I, I want to hear that. Help me, right? So what does, uh, what does the preacher say? Let's, let's get a a taste of the theme of this sermon uh, through a selection of uh, lines that, that are used throughout. Um, we're gonna read these verses. Uh, when you see something on the screen that's underlined, that's, that's your part. So you're gonna say that out loud together in English. Are you with me? Here we go. Uh, chapter two, verse one. We must pay careful attention to what we have heard so that we... And we are his house, if indeed we, and the hope in which we glory. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that, from the living God. 314, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed, to the very end. 414, therefore, 
Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, we profess. We want each of you to... So that what you hope for may be fully realized. 618, we who have fled to set before us might be greatly encouraged. 1023, let us, we profess, for he who promised is faithful. All right, are we getting a sense of of the theme of this message? He he says, look, I, I know it's difficult. There's a high cost, but hold on tight. He says that over and over again, hold on firmly, unswervingly, don't turn away, get a grip on Jesus. That's the message, that's the theme. That's the encouragement that the preacher offers because this is what we believe, this is what we preachers believe. The best possible life for every human being is one fully surrendered to Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's the best possible life. It's the greatest love. It's the most grace. It's the most hope. It's the greatest peace. It's the highest joy. It's the most significant purpose. We want everyone to be fully devoted to Jesus. Jesus centered living. That's how we say that here. And so when people who have who have said the words, maybe saying the words, I have decided to follow Jesus, and then they begin to drift. It, it hurts us. It breaks our hearts. It's hard to watch. And so like the preacher here, we have to say something. We have to say, hold on, please, don't drift away. Don't drift away. There's so much drifting happening in our culture. Drifting doesn't happen overnight, right? It happens slowly, moment by moment. Maybe it's Sunday by Sunday when you've penciled in worship on your calendar unless a better offer comes along or microchurch or Bible study or the person that you know needs Jesus that's in your life and you've just, you've continually passed on the chance to engage in a spiritual conversation because of a little fear, it's inconvenient, we just drift, we just drift. Every morning, we have an opportunity to start with God's word and with prayer, and I'm just so sleepy, and I don't function well in the morning, and I haven't had my coffee yet, and we drift, and we drift, and we drift. And the preacher says, listen, this, this life is hard enough as it is. If you're not holding on to something that's unshakable, you're gonna miss what God has promised. Sometimes we hold on to things that aren't Jesus. I mean, it's not that you don't have a grip at all. It's that we, we have a grip on things that are gonna move and, and turn and change our direction and let us down. The preacher says, get a grip. Hold on tight to Jesus. So how would you start a sermon if that was the theme? How would you start it? So let's find out how, I, you can tell me later. That's not a real question. This is not open mic day at uh, the church, we'll, we'll do that sometime. Not next week or the week after that either, but someday. Um, so let's start uh, chapter one, verses one through three and see how, how the preacher is gonna start this sermon that's intended to encourage people who are paying the high cost of following Jesus. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's a, that's a beautiful passage. That's, that's pretty good. In fact, this, is, this opening is the reason why most scholars would say Paul didn't write this. Paul wasn't capable of like this kind of literature. I mean, this is, this is like Faulkner. This is Shakespeare. This is Dickens. This is not Paul. Is beautiful though. He starts by saying, God has always been invested in revealing himself to his people. God has spoken to us through the prophets at many times and in various ways. I mean, you can go back to Moses and Isaiah and, and Jeremiah. God has revealed himself through visions and through words and through angels. He's always been invested in revealing himself to his people. But in these last days, God has gone all out. He's pulled out all the stops. And he has revealed himself fully and completely in the person of Jesus, the heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, who offered purification for our sins. And now he's seated at the right hand of majesty. The preacher's saying, I know it's hard out there. I know it's difficult. There's a high cost. But this is Jesus we're talking about. If there's anything in life worth holding on to, it's Jesus. And the encouragement is get a grip on Jesus. Now, how do we do that? How do we, how do we get a grip on Jesus through the, the challenges that may come our way, the persecution uh, that we may find ourselves in, through false teaching that tries to creep its, its way into the church? How do we, how do we get a grip? I think what we're going to see unfold in this 2,000-year-old sermon is that we, we need to know Jesus and respond to him appropriately. We need to know who he really is, not just what we heard about him from somebody else or on a podcast or I saw this website or I heard this sermon. We need to know who Jesus really is from Scripture. What does Scripture say about him? And then we need to respond to him appropriately. If he really is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, if he really is seated at the right hand of majesty, how do we respond to Jesus? The preacher is going to say uh, later, chapter three, verse one, and you have a part here too. Here's your, here's your uh, underlined part. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. Chapter 12, one and two, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We have got to get a grip on Jesus and let go of anything else that we might be putting our trust in and hold on tight to the one who will never let us down. So how do we improve our grip on Jesus? Well, if you wanna uh, learn how to improve your grip, you gotta go to the experts. Uh, American Ninja Warrior, you guys familiar with the show? All right? Um, it's still out there, I think. It's still around. This has been around for a long time. It's been around so long that there are people now, if you ask them, hey, what do you do? There are people out there who will say, I train for American Ninja Warrior. That's what they do. That's, their, that's their, kind of their thing, right? Um, so it's, if you haven't seen it, it's basically this impossible obstacle course, right? That normal human beings like you and I wouldn't get through the first five seconds of it. But these people that train and train and train and train, and they, they're, they're this, they've got these muscles in places I don't even have muscles, and they're, you know, big biceps and washboard abs, and they train and train and train, and then they fail. 
um, over and over and over again. And they're pretty happy about failing. I mean, if you watch them when they, they get like, oh, I made it halfway. I'm pretty excited about that. You're like, you only made it halfway? Yeah, okay. So why do people fail over and over and over again? The number one answer you get from the competitors and the trainers is grip strength. Grip strength. It's not the size of your biceps. It's not how many abs you have. Or I don't know how many there are. Six, eight, I don't know. That's not it. It's grip strength. And grip strength comes from muscles that most people don't even know they have, that they, we don't pay any attention to. We don't really exercise and we don't really flex because they don't look, you know, impressive. So here's what the trainers say. There are, there are two main muscle groups that uh, account for your grip strength. And they're in your forearms. They're not really in your fingers. You don't have a lot of muscles in your fingers uh, that can do stuff, but they're, they're in, your, in your forearms. And so the ones on the front, uh, on this side, are called the wrist flexor muscles. And so when you, when you curl your uh, hand in like this, that's, that's wrist flexor muscles. And the other ones are on the other side, they're called the wrist extensor muscles. And that's when you move your hand back like this. And so you can, do, you can feel that. This is a you know, show and tell. You can feel those things working, right? Um, so here's what the trainers say. It's not enough just to have strong wrist flexor muscles. Like you can't just work on these right? And you can't just work on these. They have to be built together. They have to work together in balance. And when you grow the muscles on this side and this side together in balance, your grip strength improves. And it doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't happen just by deciding. You can't just go to sleep tonight and go, I'm going to have better grip strength tomorrow. And you wake up and then you have better grip strength, right? And in the same way, you don't get a stronger grip on Jesus just by mentally going, I'm gonna hold on tight to Jesus. How many of us have tried that? I gotta hold on tight. I gotta be more faithful. I gotta, I, I, I gotta be more spiritual. I gotta be more holy. I gotta, I gotta just do, I gotta stop doing bad stuff and start doing good stuff. And we do this thing in our heads and nothing changes. Because in the same way that you have to actually exercise a muscle for it to get stronger, we have to exercise our faith for it to get stronger. So if, if the goal then is to know Jesus, who, who scripture really says that he is, and then to respond to him appropriately, those are, those are spiritual muscles that you and I can exercise. So there's, there's hope. If you, if you came here today and you're like, I'm, I'm hanging on by my fingernails and I, I don't know how I'm gonna keep holding on. It's just been hard. Or you, you've come today and you're, you're sort of zoned out about halfway through uh, because you're like, I, you know, I'm, I'm already, I've already drifted. I've already let go and I'm just going through the motions. There's hope. We can all grow. Everyone can get stronger. Everyone can increase their grip strength, knowing who Jesus really is, responding to him appropriately. So I wanna give you a couple exercises that you can do this week that will improve your grip strength. Remember, not overnight, but over a course of many days of practice and exercise, your grip strength on Jesus uh, will tighten. So here's number one. And when it comes to knowing Jesus, what does scripture really say about him? Uh, here's what I would like to challenge you and encourage you to do. Read through the book of Hebrews with us as we go through this series. Read through it uh, this month. In, in fact, um, up the ante on that, it's, it's pretty short. It's like 13 chapters. Um, my, our men's group uh, read through it, the whole thing out loud in our group. Uh, took us about half an hour, 35 minutes or so. Um, so you can read through it in just one sitting. So let's up the ante a little bit. You guys are all smart people. Um, wh what if you read through the book of Hebrews every week during this series? Just through the whole book once a week during the series. Could you do that? Like, Physically, do you have the time? Could you make the time? Could you do that? Sure. 
So what the preacher is gonna do through this book is reveal to us the real Jesus. He's gonna come at it from a different angle than what we see in, in some of the other New Testament writings. It's pretty awesome. And you're gonna get to know the real Jesus if you read through the book of Hebrews. So that's exercise number one. If, if some of you are going like, easy peasy, like I, I, I can do that, you know, I can, I can read through it every day. Give me, give me a challenge, preacher, here, here you go. As we go through the book of Hebrews, if you wanna level up, also read the book of Leviticus. Some of you are like, no, no thank you. I'm out on that. We usually skip Leviticus, right? It's, it's Leviticus is the through the Bible in a year killer. Yeah, because you start in January and you're all excited and it's Genesis and it's creation and it's, you know, it's Abraham and all these great stories and, and Exodus and, and, and there's the, the Red Sea and stuff and then it starts to get a little dry and then February and it's freezing outside and it's Leviticus and you're like, done. Leviticus is a crucial piece of the first five books of the Old Testament. It's right in the middle of the first five books. And the stuff that the preacher is gonna say in Hebrews about Jesus that relates to the sacrificial system and the priestly roles and the temple, all of that is explained in Leviticus. So if you wanna level up, uh, read through Leviticus and Hebrews together as we go through this series. Now, I'm gonna give you uh, kind of a, a cheat code for this because Leviticus is challenging. No, no uh, dis disagreement there. So um, the Bible Project, some of you are familiar with this uh, resource. They did a podcast series on the book of Leviticus. This QR code will link you to episode one of, I think it's eight episodes on Leviticus. Uh, there's about an hour an episode, but if you listen to it at 1.5, then it's uh, 40 minutes an episode or 45. That's what I do. Um, this is really helpful guide. If you read through Leviticus and listen to this podcast at the same time, and at the end of this, uh, that season, you're going you're gonna to feel like you, you got a better grip on that. And uh, this is all uh, knowing and understanding Jesus. And you're like, well, Jesus isn't even in Leviticus. The preacher of Hebrews would probably disagree with you about that. So uh, read through uh, Hebrews and Leviticus. That's going to exercise your knowing Jesus muscle, okay? Now, uh, we also need to respond to Jesus. It's not enough just to know things about Jesus. We have to respond to him appropriately. So uh, if he really is, if he really is the radiance of God's glory, if, if he really is the exact representation of his being, if he really is the one who provided the purification for our sins and then is seated at the right hand of majesty, what is, what is the appropriate response to that person? Worship. Surrender. Whatever you want, I'll do. You're the, you're the boss. You're in charge. I'm on team Jesus. I'll do whatever you say. I'll wear your colors. I'll, I'll say what you say. I'll do what you would do. That's the right response. So I just want to invite you. Here's an exercise to practice your respond to Jesus muscles this week. Just pray this basic daily prayer of surrender with me. Just, it's just a prayer of surrender. Acknowledging Jesus is who the Bible says he is. We would say something like this. Jesus, I'm all yours today. You are Lord over my thoughts, my words, my actions Make me more like you today. It's a very simple prayer, but it acknowledges Jesus as scripture reveals him, acknowledges that he's alive and well today and active in our lives and that our, our best self is the one who is conformed to the nature of Christ. 
So uh, we're gonna exercise these muscles this month. We're gonna know Jesus, the, the real Jesus, as scripture teaches by reading through Hebrews and Leviticus together. And we're going to respond to him appropriately with just a very simple daily prayer of surrender. Are you with me? Three of you are awesome. I love you. The rest of you are honest because you're just thinking about it. You're like, maybe. I don't know yet. We'll see how it goes. Um, Let's pray together as we close. Would you stand with me? Here's... Here's what I know. Um, not being here for 10 weeks, um, a lot of things could have happened in my heart and mind. One thing that didn't happen is my love for this church didn't diminish one bit. It went up. I missed you guys. And I recognized there's no, there's no family like this. I love it. And because I love it, because I love you, this is so important to me, that we together have a tight grip on one. There's only one that we should have a tight grip on, and it's Jesus. And some of us need to let go of some other things, that we have, we have strengthened our grip on something that's not Jesus. The, the preacher is going to say in chapter 10, he's going to call the kingdom of God the unshakable kingdom, because it's built on an unshakable person, the person of Jesus. Can we just, as a church, humbly go before God and say, man, I, I, have, I have put my grip on something that's not Jesus. I'm ready to let go of that and hold on tight to the one who will never let me down. So as we pray, I just want you to invite the Holy Spirit to put on your heart. Do you need to join us in uh, some reading challenge to, to, fly, to exercise your knowing Jesus muscles and a surrender challenge to exercise your responding to Jesus muscles? If the Holy Spirit puts that on your heart, just do it. Just do it. You don't have to tell me. Just do it. And let's get stronger together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. He has earned our full surrender. And I just want to pray this prayer today. Jesus, I'm all yours. You are Lord over my thoughts, my words, my actions. Would you make me more like you today? And as you do that in and among this church family, may we grow together. May we see your power unleashed. And may we see lost people in this community come running to our Savior. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. I hope you'll stick around and have lunch with us. And uh, then after, go be salt and light because the world desperately needs Christ. God bless you.